Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, if you would, let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 20. It says, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Let me read verse 21 in uh, William Barclay's translation. He said, If anyone purifies himself from these things, he will be a vessel fit to be put to a noble use, ready for any good work. And the point being that this is not talking about being born again. Vessels of honor are Christians. Vessels of dishonor are non-Christians. It's comparing the body of Christ to two vessels that you found in a normal household in ancient times. One was the chamber pot, which you, rather than run out to the outhouse, you use that at night. And the other is what we saw in First Peter or Second Peter chapter three about God's telling husbands to treat their wives or to honor their wives as a weaker vessel. And we went, I went through that last week. It doesn't mean that it's physically weak, although in our world it's talking about, it's comparing um, a normal everyday coffee cup to a piece of fine china. But it's not the fact that it's weak, it's the fact that it has an honored place. And while that is true for marriage, we're looking at it more in the sense that we are the bride of Christ, and that is his attitude towards us. When, he, when we came to Christ, we were a chamber pot. We were full of all ungodliness. There was nothing good, and it was our, our inner lives, our, our thought lives, everything about us was foul, nasty. But Jesus, in his mind, when we get born again, he sees us as a vessel of honor. Now, you have to understand, though, this is basically, it's talking about a, um, the process of sanctification. But he, he said here, verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself, that tells me, whether I am a, a chamber pot or a vessel of honor is my, my choice. Now, spiritually speaking, you have to understand this, there are um, positional truths and there are actual truths. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are seated with him, with Christ in heavenly places. That's a positional truth. When I got born again, God raised me up and seated me with Christ. I am positionally with Him. But that may not be an actual fact in my life as I live my life out. There are lots of people that are positionally seated with Christ and they live just like the world lives. They have not transformed their lives. In fact, we're there in 2 Timothy. If you go back up to um, verse 1, 
of 2 Timothy 2. This is Paul's words to Timothy before he challenges him in verse 20 and 21 to cleanse himself and to become a vessel of honor. He says, Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. This whole operation is an operation of grace by faith. Paul said in, in Romans 4.16, It is of faith that it might be of grace. Why? So that the promise might be sure to all the seed. If it's a grace operation, it's for every, actually it's for every human being that wants to accept it. But in our case, grace means it's available to all of us. But we have to exercise some faith if we're going to see changes. Well, what are the changes? Because he says, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, what are we cleansing ourselves? Immediately right here, if you're in 2 Timothy 2, go to verse 4. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. When you got born again, Jesus enlisted you in his army. We are the army of God, and we have tasks. We have been given ministries. For one thing, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. If you hold your place there in Timothy, we're going to be right back. But go over to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's start in verse 11. This is talking about Jesus. And if you keep in mind, in, in Paul's general letters, normally the first half Paul goes through and tells us everything that we have in Christ, all of the positional truths that are real about us. And in the second half, he usually starts with the phrase, Therefore... Since you have all these things positionally as a Christian, you have a right to them, this is how you ought to live and this is what you ought to do. Chapter 4 is getting into because of who you are in Christ, this is how your life ought to operate. And in verse 11 he says, He himself, meaning Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. That's the fivefold pulpit ministry. But why did he do that? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. Notice the fivefold gifts, prophet, apostle, pastor, teacher, evangelist, are all given for one thing, to build you up as Christians, and each of the people that stand in those five offices are also in the same ministry, because there's an anointing to preach. I have no special anointing to live. I live my life just the same way you do, by faith. Walk it out every day, and it's not any easier. In fact, when you get up behind a pulpit and you, you dare to preach, only dare say life's going to be a little tougher. There's an old saying that we used to uh, have with some of my minister friends, new levels, new devils. You move up in a level of authority, you get higher demons that you get to deal with. And it's not fun all the time. That's why it's one thing, you, you, one reason you don't want to take, um, assume authority that you haven't been granted. Verse 12, why do we do this? Because the saints do the work of the ministry. What is the work of the ministry? 
Preach the gospel. In season and out of season. That's what Paul's talking about in, there in Ephesians and in 2 Timothy. What are the other things? First thing he said here to, to not be uh, or to cleanse yourself one from is to being entangled in world affairs. Now being entangled doesn't mean, well, I just, I'm going to devote myself completely to the ministry and live on faith. No, Paul also said if, if a man won't uh, work, let him not eat. So we need to have jobs. We need to earn a living. Everybody needs to do that. But your first priority is to minister the word and minister the gospel. Don't get so entangled with the world that in world affairs that you don't have time to dig in and, and be able to master the word. You're right there in, in 2 Timothy 2. Go down to verse 15. Be diligent, that means be attentive, to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the key. You don't entangle yourself in the world's affairs to the point where you can't learn and minister the, the, the truth of the word. Remember, it's by grace, which means it's by faith. If it's by faith, well, let me, before I go there, drop on down to verse 16. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, or they will lead to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. What's he talking about? Quit disputing over minor things. There are, and, and if this rocks your boat, I'm sorry, hang on. There are thousands of heresy hunters out there that are just looking for some fault in your doctrine, because if your doctrine's not perfect, you're going to go to hell. Well, let me clue you in on something. The greatest revival, some of the greatest revivals that ever happened, happened as soon, I mean immediately after Jesus was, was resurrected and after he ascended into heaven. And we didn't have one book in the New Testament. Not one very few people were, work, were walking in great doctrinal truth because it hadn't been revealed yet. It hadn't been recorded yet. They didn't have a New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. And they were screwed up on that. It's one of the reasons that Paul had to say, if a man won't work, he won't eat. Why? Because the disciples, the day that Jesus ascended, he said, you know, I'm going up. And they said, wait a minute, what about the kingdom? They're still expecting him to restore the kingdom, kick the Romans out, and let's go into the millennial reign. And he said, guys, just go to Jerusalem, sit down, shut up, do nothing until the Holy Spirit comes. And what did they do? They went to Jerusalem and they started having committee meetings. We haven't changed much. But then, if you think about it, what did they do after that? Jesus said, I will come back quickly. You read through Acts 2, 3, 4, even into Acts 5. Look at the Jerusalem church. What did they do? They went and held meetings, and all of the people that were propertied 
had money, had property. They sold their property, brought all their goods together, and you had the, one of the first instances of socialism. It was voluntary socialism, but it was still socialism. We'll pull, the, the, nobody's going to be rich, we'll provide for everybody. And then it wasn't too many years later, Paul was having to hit up all of the Gentile churches for offerings to take back to the poor Jerusalem church because they sat on their knees waiting for Jesus to come back and they quit working and they went broke and they were poor. And you've seen it all through the ages. You'll see cults rise up and somebody say, Jesus is coming back here, let's go sit on the mountain and wait for him. What do they do? They sit and wait and they don't work and before long they run out of money and then they don't have anything. I've known people in, in, in um, 1987, I can't remember the man's name, he wrote a book, 87 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1987. Guess what? He didn't make it. Sad part was he wrote a sequel. 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 88. And he sold almost half as many books as he did of the first one. People were still buying it. But I know a lot of people, they went out and they had a spending spree. And they wrote, they, they racked up huge debts because Jesus is coming back and I won't have to repay them. And guess what? When Jesus didn't come back, they were stuck with the bill. And some of them went bankrupt and all of them had financial problems. Paul says, don't get in arguments about little disputes, but also just go about your everyday things, work a job, earn money, pay your way, give everywhere I tell you to pay, give, and, but don't get so entangled that your entire life is just about making money and promoting your career. There's more to life than your career. There's eternity. That's where Paul's emphasis is. Amen? Now, it comes down to faith. Let's go over to James chapter 1. So if I'm operating in faith, I'm going to cleanse myself of all this stuff. And man, life is just going to fall into place. And it's going to be good. And it's going to be easy. And, you know, going to be cherries with no pits. Well, James chapter 1, go to verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I, to be honest with you, last week I talked about there, there are scriptures that I just, you'd like to go in with your little razor knife and cut certain ones out. This is one I'd like to cut out of my Bible. Count it joy. That's an accounting term. Put it in the debit column. Now, my, my accounting terms may be wrong here because it's only been 45 years since I took accounting in high school. But put it in the column. Count it joy. Why do you have to count it joy? Because it's not going to be joyful. In the midst of an unjoyful trial, you're going to have to say, hey, this is joyful. Well, that doesn't make much sense. Verse 3 tells us why. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. When trials come, when tribulations come, when, when, when persecution come, it only comes for one reason. It's testing your faith. 
And I've said it before. There's only two reasons that you will fall on hard times. One is you did something wrong and you're reaping the fruit of those bad seed. Or the other one is you did something right and the devil's testing your faith. Well, how do I know which, which is which? Well, just look at your circumstances and ask God. And when he tells you, be honest. And if you realize that, hey, this is, this is just some seed that I sowed that I wish I hadn't sowed, but I'm reaping a crop, then repent and resist the devil. And he will have to flee from you. Amen? But how do I, how do, I do that? How do I stand for this? How do I... I, I verse 4, let patience have its perfect worth or perfect work. How do I do that? We'll drop down to verse 22. It's amazing. James answers his own question. Verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Just because you hear the word, just because you listen to hundreds of messages and you're getting word and filling up with word and filling up with word and filling up with the word doesn't mean a thing unless you take the word that you hear and put it into practice. If you don't step out in faith and exercise faith in His grace that this word is going to work in my life, you're not going to get any of the benefits. Verse 23 tells you why. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. It's your vision of yourself. When you get in a test of your faith, you have a choice. Are you going to view your life as God views you positionally? I'm seated with Him in heavenly places. I am pure. I am holy. I am righteous. I am forgiven. I am healed. All of those positional truths. Or are you going to look at yourself and say, I'm just a worm. I'm sick. I'm tired. And believe me, there are times when we all get sick and tired. And sometimes you grow weary in well-doing. Sometimes you, get weary, you grow weary in the fight. I just want to relax a while. Well, your enemy's not relaxing. And I'm not saying that there aren't times... I, I, I lived through the period in the 80s where the churches I was affiliated with, suddenly nobody wanted to have retreats. We're having advances. We're not retreating in front of the devil. Paul said it in 2 Timothy, quit disputing about stupid stuff. Just look at the history of warfare. This is off topic a little bit, but, but one of the reasons that Hitler wasted his army was he would never allow his generals to retreat. And there are times when you need to retreat. There are times when you need to pull back and recharge. Jesus did it. There were times when Jesus went in the midst of the crowd ministering and ministering and he said, that's enough, I've got to go up to the mountain and be alone. What did he do? He retreated to recharge his batteries. Why? Because he was getting tired. He had a physical body. And he had to pull back and get built up, go before the Father, get himself positioned to where he could go back and engage. It wasn't that he wasn't engaged in the fight. It was a, just, it was a different stage. Amen? So I'm not telling you life can never, you can never relax in life. I'm just telling you, you need to have a balance, but your top priority has to be the Word. It has to be the Word. For one thing, 
If you're going to operate in faith by grace, you're going to operate in grace by faith, the devil is, is you're going to, first of all, you're going to have to put your faith in the word. It's only the word that the devil is afraid of. And he's only afraid of you when, when the word, Jesus, is represented by your words about who Jesus says you are and what Jesus says you have, and you put that out there, then he's afraid of that word. Why? Because that's a weapon that'll, that will back him up. Amen? Now, go to Matthew 13, and while you're going over there, I want to I just set this up. Matthew 13, there are four parables. Parable of the sower, parable of the wheat and tares, parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. They all have one thing in common. The, the, the thing they have in common is with every situation, the determination of how those parables comes out is in how the word is received. And how the word is received determines how, whether fruit comes out or fruit does not come out. We're, we're on Sunday nights, we've been looking at the book of Revelation. You go through and read the seven messages to the seven churches. Every one of them ends with one form of, if you have ears to hear, let he who has ears to hear, hear. Meaning, it's how you listen it's your attitude to what you hear that will make the determination of whether you're going to bear fruit or not. Amen? Now, let's look at the parable of the sower. It starts in, in Matthew 13, starting in verse 18. And it says, Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. And this is Jesus' explanation. And we're going to approach this as believers... How do, we, how do we grow? But I'm looking at it in, from the sense of how are these soils, how do these listen? Because all of these soils represent believers, people. How are they hearing? Well, verse uh, 19 says, when, and this is the wayside listener. It says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. The, the key here is the person doing the hearing doesn't understand what they're hearing. Now, let me be honest. The gospel is simple. It's not always easy, but it's always simple. It is easily understood, but sometimes there are parts of the gospel that you have to think and meditate about. Peter wrote it when he was talking about Paul's writing, that there are some people who take Paul's writing and being um, uninformed or handling it will, will twist the word of truth to their own destruction. And I'll give you a perfect example. I come out of the um, Word of Faith movement. I'm proud of being in the Word of Faith movement. Brother Hagin was a mentor to me, a spiritual father to me. I mean, I didn't know him personally, but I sat under his ministry. I've read pretty much everything he's ever written and listened to most of the tapes he's ever put out. He has made a profound influence in my life. But I have heard countless times people that want to criticize the word of faith, and this is one of the primary criticisms I will hear. You people are so arrogant that you think you can boss God around. 
And you're going to tell God that this is what's going to happen. And they don't get the word of faith because they misread the message. The, the message of the word of faith, which is really what the, the New Testament is about, is not that we have authority as believers to boss God around. It's that you find out what God's already done and what God has already said, this is yours. And you agree with him and you boss the devil around and tell him to get out of your tater patch. This is mine. God gave it to me and you can't stop me from enjoying it. Now it comes across as arrogant to those that are uninformed and don't understand. But primarily they don't understand, and this is my observation, they don't understand because it goes against their tradition and they would rather hang on to their tradition than get a revelation. And we have to be careful that we don't do that. Because, you know, we're, we're good charismatic Pentecostals. We don't have traditions. Now you go to a charismatic church and what pretty much all of them are going to have the pattern. Uh, you know, fast song, slow song, prophesy, preach. Verse 20 starts with the stony listener. And I kind of labeled this one sometimes the fad chaser. But verse 20 says, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Notice, persecution and tribulation arises because they're getting the word. And they're understanding it and they're trying to put it into action. But the problem is they have no root in themselves. Now, most of us that have been Christians for any time at all understand that there, there was this period, I call it the honeymoon period, when you first get born again, that... Things just seem to work out easy. People will lay hands on you and you get answered prayer. And then after you've been a Christian for a while, it seems like suddenly it gets a little harder. And those answers to those prayers don't come quite as quick. And I've had a lot of people say, what, what is going on? It used to be a lot easier. Well, that's because you were a baby Christian and Jesus and the church picked you up cradled you and stuck a bottle in your mouth and fed you. But there comes a time when you have to spread the whiskers to stick the bottle in their mouth. There's, something, there's a problem. When you're changing diapers on a 40-year-old, they better be seriously handicapped and not just too lazy to get up and go do their business the way they do, ought to be doing their business. Sometimes we need to, we, not sometimes, all the time, we need to go. When, when you first get introduced to something, you may not have any root in yourself, but you can plant that root. You can water that root. You can, and you do that by being a doer of the word. It's not just a matter of, I've got this, and to be honest with you, a lot of Christians, I've seen it, they become, they're like a spiritual pharmacist. They've got all this knowledge and you ask them anything and they'll go root around in their bottles and they'll say, well, here, this is what the Word says. But if you examine their life closely, they're really not walking in any of it. 
God help us, that's the person who has no root in themselves. And the symptoms, you'll see this, is they will try to live off other people's revelation. They will run from service to service, from special meeting to special meeting, wanting everybody in his duck to lay hands on them, so God will do a miracle. Well, let me tell you, God does do miracles, and laying on of hands is very scriptural. But at some point, you have to stand up in your own life with your own faith in his word on your own and say, devil, I'm done with you. You can't do this in my life anymore. And you have to back him off. If Eventually, if you don't have the root of that in yourself, then you become just what we read a minute ago in James 5, or James chapter 1. You are like the man who beholds himself in the mirror. You look in the word and you say, oh, that's, that's, that's who I am. This is what God's done for me. And then you walk out and you get in the middle of the fight and you just forget everything. You just want to panic and dig a hole, crawl down the foxhole and hide. Well, you can't hide in a foxhole. You need to get up, take your weapon and shoot back. I, 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 I love this and I'm, I, I love war movies, much to my wife's chagrin. But there was a, a series on the History Channel several years ago, Band of Brothers. And I remember this one particular scene, they, the, this uh, outfit, it was right after Normandy, and they still hadn't con, you know, consolidated everything. And this was a parachute outfit, so they only had light weapons. And they're on one of those hedgerow, and there's the enemy coming at them with tanks and heavy weapons. And there is a guy that he basically, from when he parachuted out of the plane on D-Day, he, the, they gave them air sickness pills, which they should never have done because it knocked half of them out. And he slept through the first day of fighting. And suddenly, he's in this foxhole, and there's bullets whizzing by, and he's never fired his weapon yet. He's 36, 48 hours into the war, and he's never pulled the trigger. And this lieutenant comes up, and there's, I mean, there's heavy fire coming in. And this is all based on a true story. And this lieutenant's standing over the foxhole, and he's saying, son, you need to get up. You need to, you need to get up on your knees and start shooting your gun. And the guy, kid's just cowering in the bottom of his foxhole. And he says, you know what your problem is? You think you're going to live through this. You're already dead. And you've got to get over it. Get up, you're dead already, now you're a soldier, and your life is dead. Get up and start firing back. And when he said that, I thought, oh my God, that is a perfect parable of the Christian life. Why are we not doing things? Because we think we still have a life. We think that I, this is my life, and I'm going to be the captain of my ship, and I'm going to do things my way, and Jesus is looking at you and saying, no, you have been bought with a price, you're dead. You are dead, D-E-A-D, dead, graveyard casket dead. Put your life behind you and live for me. And if you will do that, suddenly you'll find you've got weapons and you've got the courage to stand up and fight. Amen? And then verse 22 is the thorny listener. And to be honest with you, this is where probably the majority of Christians fall. It says, now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. We hear the word, we receive it, we start walking in it, but suddenly the cares of the world come in. Well, I know I need time in my Bible, and I need, 
I know God's dealing with me about this, but I gotta, I gotta take care of this stuff. I gotta take care of this. We, we need more money. We need more of this. We need more of that. And suddenly the cares of the world just overwhelm your diet of the word. And you're not walking in faith. You're just marching through life task after task after task after task after task. And it all none of it bad, none of it sinful. Nothing wrong with going to work. Nothing wrong with earning money. Nothing wrong with with climbing the ladder for your career. But it's secondary to being a good soldier and pleasing him who enlisted you. Now go to to 1 Peter. We looked last time at 1 Peter 3. I think earlier I said 2 Peter. But it's 1 Peter. Well, go back to, to chapter 3. Because I want you to, to see where this starts. In 1 Peter chapter 3, this is Peter's admonition to, about marriage. And in, um, well, let's just go back and start with one. We, we read it last week, but we'll read it again. Verse 1 of 1 Peter 3, it says, Wives likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if they do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now, I know we're looking at um, the submission and authority deal from the standpoint of Jesus is the husband and we are the bride. But there's also a natural command. But remember in Ephesians, Paul said husbands, um, or said um, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. But the verse right before that, Paul also said, Be ye submissive one to another. So let me be blunt. When it comes to marriage relations, the wife is commanded to be submissive, but that does not equate to obedience. My wife's commanded to be submissive to me, but I am a fallen man. And she needs to be submissive to me, which is an attitude, not obedience to everything I say. Because let's face it, if you're a husband and you think that you have never set a direction for your household that you weren't wrong, then we'll pray for arrogance and liars here in a little while. Because as a, as a fallen man, I, believe me, I, I mess up a lot. And I point my family in directions sometimes that we don't need to go. But my wife, when I'm wrong, she can, if her, if her behavior is correct, she can sometimes pull me out of that. Not always, because let's face it, some of us guys, not me, but there are some husbands, that are stubborn. And they get in their head, we're going this way, and bless God, we're going, and you just need to submit to me. But I want you to notice this, and this refers back to what Paul said also. What does it not read? It does not read, husbands, make your wife submit. As in, this is a wrestling match, and I'm going to put a submission hold and choke her down until she does what I want to do. Doesn't work that way. It also doesn't work that it does not say, wives, make your husbands love you. But verse 2 of 1 Peter 3. So that when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, 
do not let the adornment of your do not let your adornment be merely outward arranging the hair wearing gold or putting on apparel rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God that's a submission that God requires for all of us towards one another it starts on the inside. How does it start? Let it be the hidden man of the heart, King James says. It's an inward work. With the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. We're all called to submit to one another. In other words, we are all called to be gentle and quiet towards one another. Not strive over words, not be argumentative, not want our own way. Amen? Now, this, if you, you're there in 1 Peter, go over to um, chapter 5. And we're going to start in, well, let me just say from verse 1 through 5. That all of that is talking about um, the elders, the leaders of the church, qualifications for that in actions. And all of that is basically required of all of us. But in verse 5, Peter starts with the, the keys, and these are some of the keys to cleansing yourself and, and transforming yourself from a chamber pot to a, a vessel of honor. Verse 5, likewise you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Number one requirement to walk in faith, to walk and cleanse yourself from every evil work and transform your life from that of a chamber pot to a, a, a vessel of honor is to walk in humility. Why? Peter quotes uh, Proverbs 3.34. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When you step out of humility, your opponent is not the people around you. Your opponent is God himself. And let me just give you a clue. You're not going to win that battle. Ever. That's why he has called us to humility. Now... We'll try to get through this quick, but I've got a lot of scripture to go through. The best picture of this, the differences in humility and not walking in humility, is comparing Saul and David. Go back to 1 Samuel 13, and we're going to start in verse 11. But I want you to understand, let me set the stage. Prior to verse 11, Saul is now the king. The Philistines were attacked by Jonathan. Jonathan took a troop of people out, attacked the Philistine garrison, came back into Israel. What did the Philistines do? They do what every warring nation does. They gathered a bigger army. And suddenly Saul's looking out there and, and his son went out and won a little battle and now he's in a major war. And so he decides, Saul, naturally, let's gather our big army, but before we do anything, I want Samuel the prophet to come and make a sacrifice and get God in on this. I want God fighting with us. I don't want to go in this with just our natural arms. 
But, and Samuel says, I will be here on such and such a day. And that day comes. And Samuel's nowhere to be found. And the day starts going on and on and on and on. And Saul starts to get a little nervous. Some of the people, the, the, the less brave, start filtering out of the army encampment and they start going back home. Samuel's not coming. This is not going to work. We're going down, guys. So what does Saul do? Saul goes ahead and makes the sacrifice himself. He stepped out of his authority as king and stepped over into the authority of the prophet and priest and he had no right to that anointing. And God was not pleasantly, or was not pleasantly uh, endowed towards Saul. Verse 11, this is how Samuel addressed him when he came. And notice Saul's response. This is in humility. This is pride speaking. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, notice this, when I saw, me, when I saw, when I saw in my eyes, that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come. Samuel, this is your fault. You said you'd be here and you didn't come. And I saw, I saw people live, leaving. Um, that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the, to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Notice the progression here. I saw, I said, I felt compelled. That's Saul taking everything on his shoulders. It's my responsibility. He assumed the spiritual authority he was not entitled to. And then down in um, verse 13, Samuel then said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul's problem wasn't just that he offered a sacrifice. It's that he did not follow God's command for him. And God has a command for each one of us. Then if you drop down to um, 1 Samuel 15, to verse 1, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus the Lord says, I will punish Amalek. And this is an ancient enemy of Israel's. And God basically said, I want you to go to the camp of the Amaleks and I want you to kill everything. Well, in verse 9, they've come back from that and they didn't do what God said. Verse 9 says, but, Paul, but Saul and the people, it's both the people and Saul, the leadership and the people that are following him, spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. In other words, all the things that are worthless, yeah, we'll get rid of that. We're putting that in the trash. 
And God said, when you empty this building, I want everything in that building in the trash can. And but Lord, we found some things that are pretty good. This will work. Problem was, it, was, it all had contagion in it. All of it had contagion. It was a contagion of sin. And then, verse 10, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Keep in mind, God has called us kings in our lives. We are kings and priests unto our God. Now, whether or not you rule and reign in your life is your decision because if you don't follow God's command, He can look at us and say, I greatly regret that you've quit following me and you're not performing my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, he was told, It was told Samuel, Saul went to Carmel and indeed he set up a monument for himself. Notice that. Not only is is Saul not obeying God's Lord, but suddenly he's putting up posters about how great he is. He's thinking more of himself than he's thinking of fulfilling God's commandment. And, And he has gone on around, passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. That's the great deception. I'm doing the Lord's work when actually I'm doing a work of the flesh. And if you get deceived enough, you will think you're doing God's work when you're not. Samuel answered him and said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have, they, notice it's they, not me, I'm king, I'm commander, but those people that you gave me, kind of reminds me of Adam when God called them on their sin. Well, it was that woman you gave me. And don't think too, too bad about Adam because when, when God asked Eve, she said, well, it was the serpent's fault. Nobody wanted to take responsibility. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. Saul decided to make excuses. It's the people. They did all of this. And then he goes on. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Well, I did part of what you said, God. But those people, they they just didn't listen to me. I know I'm king, but you know you don't want to push the people too far. 16, then Samuel said to Saul, and this is the Roberts translation, Oh, just shut up. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul's at least smart enough to say, well, speak on. So Samuel then said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And what was Saul's response? More excuses. Saul said, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of the Amalek. 
And I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder. Again, excuse shifting. It's those other people's fault. So Samuel said, as the Lord is... um, He came to finish that verse 21. We're just going to sacrifice all of it right now. And then verse 22 said, Samuel told him, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and adultery. Because you have noticed this, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Samuel no, leaves no doubt the, the, the responsibility of this Saul is on you and you alone. Because of that, he's rejected you from being king. The fruit of Saul's sin here is the loss of kingship. He can no longer rule and reign. And then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. Now that he knows there's punishment coming, he accepts responsibility. But it's too late at that point. Amen? And then go down to, uh, go over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is David. And I want you to contrast Saul's attitude to Samuel to David's attitude to Nathan. And to set the background on this, David didn't go out to war when it was the time to go to war. It's time to fight. I stayed home. And because he stayed home, he saw Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop and he got full of lust and he pulled Bathsheba in and basically took advantage of her. He's the king. She's just a woman who has no rights. And we don't know if she was a willing partner or she was raped, but either way, it was not a good situation. And to make matters worse, then she gets pregnant. And so David gets the bright idea, well, let's bring Uriah, her husband, who notice he's, he's a Hittite, even though he's fighting for Israel. So there were non-Jewish converts in the nation of Israel at this time. But he brings Uriah in. Uriah, because he's got honor, he's not going to go into his wife. He sleeps on the doorstep of the palace. And David says, man, this is not working out. He was supposed to go in and lay with his wife, and then we just claimed that the baby was his. So it's no doubt the, who the, the fruit of the sin, who was the sinner here. And so David arranged, he's king, sent word, you put him in a, in a place where their fighting is vicious, and then you pull back from him and you let him get killed. Basically, David murdered him. And then he took Bathsheba. This is a, this is a pretty big sin. In, in, in most Christians' book, this would be a bigger sin than not doing exactly what God told Saul to do. I mean, this is having an affair and then murdering a man over the affair and then taking his wife into your home. That's pretty serious, at least in human scales. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said, There were two men in one city, one rich and one poor. And he went through this whole scenario where the rich man had all this flock, the poor man had one sheep that he actually treated as a pet, and the rich man had guests, and rather than slaughter his own sheep, he went and stole the, the, this pet from the poor man and slaughtered it and fed it to his guests. And David, being the great man of faith that he was, in verse 5, When he heard this story, 
David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. David pronounced a pretty hefty penalty on himself. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You're the man. Thus says the God of Israel, I, have, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in His sight? Again, the sin wasn't the, the adultery, the rape, the murder. The sin was despising the word of the Lord. The actions, the, the adultery, the murder, were the fruit of the sin. We need to get past that. What you see and what you call sin is not the sin. It's the fruit of the sin. The sin is despising the word of the Lord. That's where the sin started. The rest is just fruit from a tree you planted back here. And then he, he goes on, tells him, you killed Uriah, you've done all of these things. And then in verse 13 was David's response. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've had people ask me, how can God say that, that David was a man after his own heart? Because when David was confronted with his sin, he did not make an excuse. He said, you're right and I am horrible. I have sinned against the Lord. He accepted responsibility when he fouled up. And God loves that. He knows we're sinners. He knows even though we are saints and positionally we are holy, He knows we still foul up all the time. What He wants is when He calls us on it to not say, but God, but, I mean, if you've, if you've had children, you, you know that little whiny voice. But Dad, everybody's doing it. And you want to look at Him and say, the spirit of slap's coming on me. You need to change your attitude. And, you know, it's a good thing God doesn't get that spirit of slap because I'll tell you what, I'd spend most of my time on my honey. Then Nathan said to David, back in verse 13, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. There were consequences to this sin. God did not want that child to die. But there were consequences, not just because of the sin, but because of who David was. He had great responsibility, had great authority, and when he sinned, it gave the enemies of God great opportunity to blaspheme. That's why it's a much bigger deal when we, as Christians, can't walk in love. Because people will look at you and say, hypocrite. Yeah, there's nothing to that Christian stuff. You talk the big talk, but you're just a bunch of hypocrites. Oh, for quiet in this Pentecostal place.
But that is the great difference there. But, but part of this, if you go back over to 1 Peter chapter 5, remember, the first thing he said in verse 6, well, verse 5, and verse 6, humble, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Part of that humility is submitting to one another, having a quiet and gentle feeling or a quiet and gentle attitude towards... Remember, Jesus said the number one attribute of his church would be our love one for another. And yet, the Catholics fight with the Protestants. Every group of Protestants fights with every other group of Protestants. I mean, we've we got people, that, you know, they want to have minor wars, not minor wars, they want to have major theological wars over the smallest theological point. And if it's not a heaven or hell issue, who cares? Wow, I don't, that contemporary music, that's just, you know, that's not honoring God. Well, my response and it's not real lovely, it usually is, well, who made you God? You worship the way you want to worship, I'll worship the way I want to. The music that suits me may not suit other people. But that's not a heaven or hell issue. It's not really a huge doctrinal issue. Why would we argue about it? Well, I won't. But notice what he, what he says here. We humble ourselves, but part of that humbling, verse 7, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Remember back in the parable of the sower? The thorny ground was those who received the word and wanted to be fruitful, but the cares of this world, same Greek word here, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the word. Well, we need to take those cares and we need to cast them over on the Lord. And then when we do that, then we can be sober and vigilant and those, those two words, they mean a lot different than what most people think they mean. The key for us, though, we have to walk in humility. And, and that starts with how we walk before God. When God calls us on something, first of all, when He tells you to do something, do it. It's not, it's usually, and sometimes, I'll be honest with you, there are times when God just says, I'd like you to do this, but it's your decision. And if he tells you, I'd like for you to do this, but it's your decision, there's probably blessings, but there's no, there's no big deal if you don't do it. But there are other things that God says, this is how it is. You choose. Are you going to follow my word or you're not going to follow my word? And when we choose not to follow his word, then he comes and he says, this is not good. And how we respond to him, do we make excuses or do we just not we just shut our ears and not want to hear it? Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.